Welcome into this week's edition of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast, alongside SunDevilSource.com publisher Chris Cartman. I'm your host, Kerry Crowley. Chris, this week we've got another special guest. We're joined by Arizona State's Executive Director and Chief Athletics Compliance Officer Steve Webb. Steve, you've been at ASU since 2011. You worked at the NCAA. Thank you so much for joining the show this week. Thanks for having me. Hey, do you, um, people ask about what your job is, do you give them that whole long title? Or what do no, you what do you tell no, them? No, no, no. I say I'm the compliance guy. Yeah. I, you know, I mean, like a lot, I, I will sit in meetings where people rattle off a big long. I just say no, I'm the compliance. And so then, the, what are the what are the subsequent questions that you normally get a lot of after that? From people that yeah, don't, don't know the world. Yeah. What does that mean? You know, what is it, they think that we have to do with playing rules or you know stuff like that? But we 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 uh, you know because it's such a broad array of the kind of things that we do, and it, it's. Uh, it's somewhat difficult to explain. I just say that we we help everyone know and understand or know and follow the rules of the NCAA. So, and, so what is the daily life for you here at ASU? What do you do in a day in the life of a compliance officer? Well, I mean, like I said, we, our job is you know we have a three hundred page uh, manual over there that 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 governs things like recruiting, financial aid, student athlete awards, amateurism, uh, uh, personnel. Uh, you know the 90 different people we have in football. What each of them can do. What each, you know what they can't do. And so our job is to make sure that all of our stakeholders, you know, our coaches, our student athletes, prospects, uh, boosters, fans, ASU institutional staff members, our senior administration, everybody, that they know the rules that apply to them and and that they follow them. So our job primarily. Uh, relates to, um, and you can break it up to a number of different parts, but the primary jobs I think the most compliance people will talk about is education and monitoring. So we have an educational program. Uh, I like to say that we have our stakeholders know the rules that apply to them. We, we provide rules to them um, at the time that they need them in a way that they can understand them. So whether that's um, uh, you know, through various forms of technology, social media, PowerPoint presentations, one-on-one -on -one meetings, uh, whatever it is, right? Um, and, and then we also have to have monitoring systems, um, which uh, uh, to, to, in my mind, is kind of maybe the more important. The education side is the fun stuff, the videos. You saw the videos we did with, with Bobby Hurley and mm -hmm. Tracy and those guys. That stuff's kind of fun and, it, and it's very helpful, but the monitoring side to actually make sure that our stakeholders are following the rules that we've taught them, mm -hmm. right? Um, and that, that has to do with creating, uh, maintaining, tweaking uh, departmental processes to do all of the various things we do, or even just getting out and on-site monitoring, um, getting out to practices and, and games and uh, on road trips, uh, booster events, uh, anything where our student athletes to community service stuff and just making sure that uh, the people are following the rules that, that are put in place. So I'm kind of fascinated by uh, the career arc that, that someone takes and how they arrive where they're at and um, you have a fascinating background. You, you were a walk-on baseball player at Northern Illinois. Uh, you ultimately became the, the team's MVP, right? And uh, studied bioscience, right? Biology, yeah. yeah Biology, yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah. So, so what was it like growing up in, in Illinois and, and going through that portion of your life? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I didn't leave the Midwest until I came, well, until I came to Arizona. I mean, everything I did was was in the Midwest. Uh, that's when you know, I grew up, and I grew up in a little town called Manuka, Illinois, outside of Joliet. Most people have heard of Joliet. We could 
largely because of the prison that's there, or the Blues, <laughs> or the Blues Brothers movie. Um, Spent a lot of time there. Huh? Yeah, but we, I mean, we were. I was in a neighborhood where we had a bunch of kids. Yeah, no, um, a bunch of kids um, that played sports. We played whatever sport was was in season. We played it in the neighborhood. We played all day long. We, but most of what we did was was neighborhood stuff. I played with older kids, which I think would help me to to progress w way beyond what my actual athleticism w would suggest I could do. Um, but it, it, you know, I stayed close t to home. To uh, went to Northern Illinois to to, uh, to just go to school. Um, the walk-on process was, was fairly interesting. I think every kind of part of my career has not been maybe the most natural route. I wasn't recruited heavily out of high or out of uh, high school to go play Division One baseball. Kind of ended up there. I think largely because of the way that we did play growing up and the and maybe the work ethic that I had playing with kids that were all two and three years older than me uh, but uh, yeah walked on there um, and, and uh, it was a, it ends up being a pretty good story uh, it wasn't it wasn't an easy process and it, I didn't play a lot until my last year but uh, but um, it was uh, it, it, I think that 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 kind of that whole process is kind of what led me to where I'm at now and wanting to be in collegiate athletics uh, later on in life. Yeah. So you go from walking onto the team and you end up becoming the team MVP at the end of your career by, for Northern Illinois. How does that happen for, for someone like you? What, what was that process like? You know, I, some of it is, like I said, kind of the work ethic I, I, in, in just uh, given the opportunity to play, and as as you get older uh, and you you progress or and you age, you kind of mature athletically. And I think a lot of where I became a, a better athlete was post high school. So I think just getting the opportunity to play a little bit uh, was a big deal. I think some of it was you know being in the right place at the right time. I was at a, a program uh, that had just resurrected a baseball program, so they had cut it in the eighties. Northern Illinois brought it back, I think, in nineteen ninety. And, and uh, you know, they didn't have a, a, a bunch of scholarship players. And then I think our coach missed on a couple catchers. And so um, so I was kind of right there in, in the right place. But even even when I was in college, the interesting thing, I remember going to talk to my coach after I had played, uh, played two years. So I didn't actually walk on until my junior year, so my third year. So my sophomore year, I traveled with them as a manager. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, he called me manager, but I was mainly a bullpen catcher, kind of a practice <laughs> player. Um, but uh, I, I went to see him after, you know, I, so the next year I walked on and I spent two years with the team and one year I was labeled the number two catcher, but I think I had 60 total at bats in two years. And I remember going to talk to my coach after my fourth year and asking him, you know, whether I should come back. My teammates, my roommates wanted me to come back and I went into his office to ask him to come back and he said, no, you don't need to come back. Uh, <laughs> you, know, we, you know, we recruited a, a freshman and, uh, and that was coming in. We had a you know another guy that was below me, or two guys below me that, that were you know that were catchers. And he said, I just don't really see you being the guy that takes us you know to the postseason. So I went home. I go, I'm not coming back here. You're not going to waste the money to come back to school. Right. Um, but my roommates were adamant. You know, like no, you got You can't. You can't just quit. Like you can't be done. You've still got you know eligibility left. So I went back to my coach and asked him, uh, you know, if I beat these guys out, will I play? And he said, you know expletive yeah if, if I want to win and so I just I, I you know I found a place he didn't find me a place to play over the summer um and I went and found my own place and played all summer long and just I think it's part of it is just getting that chance to play and I came back and 
and just you won the job. I mean, I, a lot of it was just grit and determination, I think. I wanted to play. I mean, it was fun. That's why I'm in sports today. I mean, Division One college sports was the most fun experience, I think, some of the most fun experiences that I have ever had in my life. So why then do you think that you decided to go to law school and go into a career of intellectual property law and, and the, the tedium that probably go associated with that? Yeah, it's funny. I, I did not plan out my post collegiate career very well. I just, I mean, my parents didn't go to college. Uh, I mean, my brother had, and he kind of went into a path in business, but I didn't do a lot of thought of what I wanted. I thought I'd be a doctor, right? And, and I'd, I'd actually done really well in high school, did fairly mediocre when I was uh, my first couple years of college, but coinciding with my walking on the baseball team is when I did really well in, in school, got my grades to where they you know should have been. And I thought that's kind of the route I'd go. But then as time progressed, my, my last year, I thought I was gonna get drafted and I would have an opportunity to do that. Um, See, everybody, all athletes think that they're going no, to the promised land. I didn't. <laughs> I didn't my, my dad very much disabused us of that notion when we were little kids. I remember my dad telling us, you know, everything's they're going to play Major League Baseball. You guys aren't playing Major League Baseball. <laughs> I, I believe that at one point I was the only player on my team at Northern Illinois that didn't believe I was going to get drafted. <laughs> the only reason I did is because I actually had scouts talking to me at that point, and they told me I was on the board and, and – and, um, I thought that would happen. I had a lot of independent league teams looking. So I thought I had a shot because of them, and then the phone call didn't come. And <laughs> the over, the overinflated yeah. sense of self just <laughs> permeates right. the entire hey, I didn't have I didn't have an agent. Everybody, you know, everybody's got an agent these days or an advisor, none of that stuff. I just sat there on draft day thinking the phone was going to ring on the draft days. Um, but after college, I uh, when that didn't work out, I mean, I did end up going, down, like I said, to this tryout. I don't know if I said that, if I talked to you beforehand about this. I ended up... Uh, going to a, like a local tryout, and the guy from the uh, the Pirates, um, I remember his name is Bill Brick. Like, called, kept me afterwards at a Cincinnati scout, saying, "Hey, I can find a place for you." And so for the next four or five months, I thought, you know, I got I mean, this is gonna happen. And then nothing <laughs> happened. I remember I was home on like, New Year's Day, waking up. I got a phone call from the scout, and he called me and said he wanted to invite me down to a tryout right before right before uh, spring training. Um, so that was my opportunity. I signed with an independent league team out of there. But but coming back and going back to out of college, I hadn't planned out what I wanted to do. So I just started taking every standardized graduate school test, the GRE, I took the LSAT, I took the MCAT. I had no idea what I was applying for schools for hospital administration and, 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 and biology. And, um, and, uh, and I actually ended up going, you know, getting some jobs. I was an urban forester. Um, for a while, but I, I, I ended up deciding uh, that I was going to go back in uh, graduate school to uh, to study molecular biology. So I was actually at Loyola University of Chicago um, in, in 1997, and uh, and I and and I didn't ultimately like that. My wife at the time and I, um, well, she wasn't my wife, but my girlfriend at the time, uh, we, were, we were engaged, and we decided, hey, this isn't the place for me, Loyola. Let's go to school out west or something. She wanted to go back to graduate school as well, which. She, and uh, and and I thought, all right, well, you know, that's that's what I want to do. I want to I want to I want to do ecology. I like ecology. I want to go out west and, you know, go to a place like Colorado or something and, and, and get a master's. And I ended up uh, taking a trip. My, one of my friends was moving back across the country, and I was at a party with him in San Diego. I heard these guys talking about how they just graduated from law school and how bad it was to be a lawyer. How much they hated it and they wanted to do everything something else and I thought well that sounds good I'll go to law school <laughs> <laughs> so that, that I made the decision on that trip and then 
but not in Colorado. With not not in Colorado, I had a. <laughs> you I actually got, went the other direction. Yeah, I went yeah. to Ohio State. Yeah, I um my, my, my I got married, and we both went back to school. So we had to find a place that had uh, both uh, horticulture, which is what uh, what my ex-wife did, and then uh, and law. And so we replied to some places like uh, U U Dub, I think, and uh, I think they rejected me. I think I got the rejection letter. As I was like before the, they actually got my application. <laughs> um, it was very clear. But I, you know, I got a bunch of Midwest schools. Kind of had your array because you don't know how you're gonna do on the LSAT, and uh, ended up going to Ohio State, which was, I mean, ended up being a great, a great move. Um, it was a fun place to be. Well, it clearly worked out. You graduate summa cum laude from the Michael Moritz College of Law at Ohio State. Then you go to Chicago and work right away at Kirkland and Ellis, a big firm. You're a litigation guy, and then all of a sudden. You're at the NCA. How did you make that transition from being a lawyer to going to the NCA? That doesn't seem so natural. No, um, and it's or not financially wise. No, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> Some would say like when I told them when I got to the NCA what 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 I was doing and like uh, you can see what large law firm salaries are. It was not the, the most probably fiscally responsible decision, but uh, I didn't go to law school to go work at a big firm. I did better in law school than I thought, um, and I so I took the you know, I started getting kind of offers from from big firms. Um, you know, and the salary was nice. You know, I mean, I thought, well, you start off at the top, right? And, and I thought Kirkland Ellis was the best firm in the country, and they certainly had the best intellectual property department. Um, and I was a biology guy, so I could I could do intellectual property, I could do patent litigation. Um, I thought I could start out at the top, and then, you know, you can always go down from there. <laughs> um, it was amazing though. Like I don't know that I can describe it, the best three years of of my of my professional life. It taught me everything that I would ever really know. I mean, way more than law school. Um, any ability to do anything in my life, I will I will say, came from the three years of practice I had there. But it was also like almost you know the worst couple of years because you just it's so difficult. It's so complex. It's so the anxiety is so high. You're, you know the hours. You know you're talking. I mean, in real hours, you're talking 60, 70, 80 hours every week. You know, you're trying to bill at a minimum of 40 hours a week for 50 weeks a year. That's kind of a minimum standard, 2,000 hours a year. Um, it just wasn't what I wanted to be able to do. We didn't have iPhones at the time, so I'm calling in every two hours on the weekend to see, you know, if I've got a voicemail and come in. I remember going into going into the, the office on holidays. Mother's Day, my mom comes over and I get a call where you have a we have something happening in England, uh, this arbitration going on, and uh, I got to go in and look for, a, look look through hundreds of thousands of documents to try to find this gene sequence, and it, it was and so I was like, this isn't what I want to do. Um, I had a friend in law school that went into law school to become an AD, and uh, I had visited him shortly before uh, I was taking a deposition out in San Francisco, and I called him up and said, how do I get in doing what you do, and and and. Uh, because I loved it. I mean, I loved college sports. It kind of got me where I was at, and I, I thought, man, that's got to be fun just being around in an office. He, his office was in in the basketball facility. I thought, I want to do that. And so it was actually a process from there. Um, and about the time that I settled into the law firm and actually was starting to enjoy myself, felt confident what I was doing a couple years in, um, is the time that the opportunity came to go to the NCA. And uh, the biggest hurdle was saying, how do you take, how do you take your family uh, of four, uh, I had a stay-at-home, my ex-wife is a stay-at-home mother, and I didn't want to force her to, to, to go back to work just simply so I could do something different and uh, and afford to live. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Luckily, Chicago, Indiana, Indiana's a little bit less expensive than Chicago. Sure. Yeah. So, um, 
it, it was a, a lifestyle change is what it was. It was, hey, let's like what you do every day. Let's work more normal hours. Let's be a part of your family. Because if you're at a law firm, I didn't see an avenue where I would ever be able to coach my kids or be around them. I mean, I used to see my daughter only in the morning. She was a one-year-old at the time that I, before we moved, and uh, I didn't see her at night. She was always asleep by the time I get home. So and it wasn't, it was difficult for a while, but now now, now it's okay. <laughs> yeah. And so walk us through just kind of what your day-to-day life was like at the NCAA, where you started, what, what you were doing, and then how that sort of transitioned uh, before you, you arrived at ASU. Yeah, so well, I started off in, um, in, in uh, uh, as an assistant director of enforcement, and I was working in a major infractions, what they called at the time major infractions, which the was- The death penalty. You know, big, big <laughs> cases involving institutional violations yeah. of NCA rules and, uh, and, and processing uh, institutional violations before the Committee on Infractions. Um, so I did that, I, I got hired, uh, I worked there for a year and a half in, in enforcement, and it was, it was a great job. I mean, I have the, you know, the stories that I teach from my, or that I can tell uh, about, uh, you know, what I've done. There's a ton of stories from, from those times, you know, going and investigating that stuff. What's your best one? I just, you know, I, I think I probably have better stories from investigating at, at the eligibility center. My next one, I'm, let me let me think about that one because sure. you put me on the spot a little bit there. Um, I, I mean, well, I guess one of my favorite ones is sitting. I will tell you this one. So, it, it, I was do, I was you can in, reserve whatever information. You, yeah, you yeah. Don't want so so I was investigating a case, it, 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 a football case. It never ended up being anything. It was right as I was leaving, actually, enforcement to go to the eligibility center, um, and it was at a, it was a, a, a big southern school, <laughs> right? And it was an SEC school, and uh, and I uh, and I remember. I was working with another investigator because I was transitioning off and the attorneys for the for the school uh, we were going down to do a visit to talk to the whole football staff uh, it was about uh, um, impermissible con- all kinds of stuff and it was a you know a bunch of and we, were, we had a slate of interviews of, of coaching staff members and then a bunch of football players who are now many of them are playing the NFL and so it was an interesting trip in and of itself but I the way that they took it down there is much different than you you see elsewhere um, I got called up and they were asking if they could rent the hotel rooms for us because they didn't want anybody to know that they didn't want to see an NCAA address on any and on any receipt because someone mm-hmm. would find out we were there. Um, and then, in which you know, I, I think we avoided that somehow. And then, um, not only that, but they picked us up at the hotel. And the lawyer did, and they drove us literally into the football stadium. Like we had no contact with the, <laughs> with the public, so that and into the bowels of the stadium, so that you could go in and, and talk to this. Like I said, this lineup of uh, of coaches and student athletes. Um, the funniest part about it was after all of this stuff, we were in a you know a town where, I mean, people know what the NCA is, and and uh, and the person I was with, I mean, shockingly to me, I brought no NCA gear. Like if I had NCA on anything, it never. When you're an investigator, because you're on the plane, people are asking what you're doing. Then you're just lying, right? Because you can't yeah. tell me I'm going to investigate Arizona State. She had like NCA tags all over her bag, and the person's like, "What are you doing down?" And she's like, "I can't tell you." And it was such like I remember like scooting down the thing because I didn't want to pretend. Like, they made such a like a. She's like, "I can't tell you what I'm doing." She's like, "Come on, what are you doing down here?" She's like, "I can't." I can't. I'm like, oh, "We're going to be in the paper the next day." Sure. 
But um, yeah, it was because they're all they're all college towns for the most part. Most of them. Lots of college towns and, and lots of people like wanting to know what the NCAA. So why don't done. you just blink twice when I name the school? Uh, Al- <laughs> Alabama, Auburn, LSU, <laughs> Mississippi State, Ole Miss, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia, Kentucky, South Carolina. Anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, you, you were I saw not even one blink there. <laughs> yeah. So you you spend your time at the NCA, you work, and like you said, uh, and then how do you end up at ASU from that job? How do you go from being on the institution side with the NCA to coming to a university and kind of seeing the flip side of things? Yeah, so I worked the two years in enforcement, realized when you said what I was doing every day, it was kind of the same thing. It was fun, but it was a very horizontal or, uh, or uh, structure, so there was no really upward mobility there, and you, we weren't getting paid well, and they weren't giving tons of raises there, and so like I, I started to actually look to go back to the law. That but, was in, that was uh, in the nineties, right? <laughs> no, it was the, yeah, early two thousands. Uh, I think they pay better now. I, that's why I said that. Yeah, um, well, not at that level, at the peon level I know, where I was I at. Um, we kid the NCAA. So we, so we, uh, we, we, uh, I decided to. Uh, maybe go back to practice law in, 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 in Colorado. I thought maybe geographically it would, would, at least if I didn't, if I didn't love what I was doing, I could, you know, be in a place where I'd love it. You have it. a Colorado obsession. I do like yeah. Colorado. I've mentioned that a couple of <laughs> times. Um, but uh, you've never lived there. I, I haven't. You know, I've, I go every, every time we, that's a trip. I make sure I go on with football. Yeah. From a modern It's a good trip. Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw you guys there. This, yeah. This that's, where, that's where we met. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, but, uh, so, I didn't, but I didn't want to ultimately give it up. The eligibility center opened up. It was a, it was a, it was a startup by the NCA back in 2007, um, and and I, I applied for one job uh, that was kind of slated for another guy that I, was actually a friend of mine, and uh, and they offered me this amateurism job. Um, so through my experiences at the eligibility center, which were much more contact the membership, much more contact with people in the national office, interdepartmentally and whatnot. Um, I started to, um, you know, think, think about what I wanted to do next. At first, I thought I wanted to work my way up at the NCA, but after a while, I kind of discovered that's not what I wanted to do, or that there weren't a lot of opportunities to do things in the areas I wanted. And I started to look, kind of geographically, at opportunities in, in states that I might want to be in, or, or places that that we would want to live in. And um, and then also, if I was going to be in compliance, it was going to be a compliance office that reported up through the general counsel's office and not within athletics. That was important to me um, for a number of different reasons. Um, and I remember just one day getting on and checking out a bunch of Western states and Arizona State's job came up and I had a relationship with the, with the assistant AD at the time that I knew and I called her up and asked her about it. Who's that? Uh, Lila Cleary. So oh, she's Lila. at Iowa now in the same position or a senior associate AD position because she's in athletics. But, um, and, uh, and, what they were looking for was someone to create systems coming off of what had happened in two major infractions cases in the 2000s to establish institutional control. And, uh, and, and, and so they had created a, this position that I'm in now. Um, and it just, it looked like a great opportunity and also to get out to the PAC, which is a place, a conference that I wanted to be in. I wanted, like I said, to be out west, whether it was yeah. Colorado or Arizona or Washington, any, somewhere out here. And uh, it was like, it was kind of like the perfect, perfect fit. And and the people that were hiring me, so I was hired by the general counsel, they were looking for kind of something outside of what you normally see, which is at the time people were hiring 
people that had compliance experience. I mean, I came in not really knowing the rules. I mean, I just didn't. We, although we did stuff on the enforcement side, you don't know the, the 5,000 rules that are in the book. You know, like the six that are the big deal sure. or you or issue spot and you learn rules. Or, or when I was at the eligibility center, I was only dealing with amateurs and I was only dealing with bylaw 12. Yeah. Um, so it was it was more about my my uh, transferable skills and building systems and and the things that I had done there that was I think uh, that was uh, 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 appealing to to the general counsel's office here. So so to that point, uh, ASU had had some baseball infractions, right? Um, basketball. This is like early in the APR. Basketball had lost a scholarship. Uh, Rob Evans at the end of his tenure toward trending transitioning to Herb Sendak. Uh, ASU had had some a couple of little football things that had happened or substantial football things that happened, including uh, the Lauren Wade yeah. um, murder. And so what what was that all like um, uh, implementing and getting all of this structure in place at ASU like like you wanted to because you were overseeing that now? Yeah, yeah, it was uh, you know one thing that they had done, before I got here was was in addition to moving the uh, the the line compliance line to the general counsel's office, which is good for athletics in my mind too, um, was uh, purchased uh, compliance software. So, which is largely one of the big things they do is it's a phone call monitoring system, right? Mm -hmm. So it, you don't have people. There's still people that do. This was before you, or this was at your. It direction? was right right at the same time. Okay. So like right they 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 had actually done the the the. Hire, you know, selected the vendor before I got here, and it's a way that monitor all the calls for all the institutional phones and match it up against what's in the recruiting database so you don't have people sitting down and doing it by hand. Because then baseball, that was a big thing that happened. Yes, there. and that was part of what their corrective measures were. They told the NCA they had a bunch of impermissible calls, um, which is, I'd say, most people probably did back in those days. And you yeah. weren't going to, one of the things they got hit with was not. You know, not having phone call logs that coaches fill out, and it's like, well, what are the value of those logs in the first place? Because coaches aren't writing down that they're that they're making impermissible calls. So sure. <laughs> anyway, um, but so you know, you have an electronic system with a 100% auditing feature. So not only what they're logging and putting in on the front end, but the the raw dump at the uh, from the bill at the end. That was a big deal. Um, but then also to take that mechanism, this this tool, the software tool, and create. And there are other there's practice monitoring so, uh, part component to it. There's uh, 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 recruiting software, contact evaluation stuff. But even taking it beyond those and expanding its use uh, to, to, to automate all of our processes, to mm -hmm. get off of paper entirely, to, to really make sure that we have electronic automated in processes that are integrated into the rest of the department, other processes that feed into compliance or good compliance becomes a part of. So the, the, the they just purchased the major component of the infrastructure we need. And then it was just about, and they were ready after infractions cases. You saw it happen at USC. You saw it happen at Oklahoma. You see it in all these places, Oregon, that have an infractions case. They realize compliance matters. It matters for the bottom line because you spend a lot of money sure. uh, and, and reputational harm if you, aren't, if you don't have a good compliance system uh, or program. And so, you know, ASU was ready to spend expend resources to 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 and to uh to do what we needed to be able to do to make sure this didn't happen again mm -hmm. um and so it wasn't hard to convince people to do the things that you thought you needed to do the question was is are we doing the things that we need to do to to, to build a system that that works and i think that my experience at the nca both on the enforcement side and just you know looking at 
waivers and student athlete reinstatement request, all these things that I did on the on the amateurism side, um, helped me to understand what matters to cut through kind of all of the the millions of things that we do every day and recognize what are the big ticket things? What do we need to do because they matter from a risk standpoint or prioritize it because it's an important fray issue from a historical perspective because we have phone call violations or coaching limitations issues in baseball or the financial aid issues we had in the, in the football case back in the day. So it was just a matter of, you know, it's, Working in college sports is not the most efficient thing in the world. It's not like private practice where you can just do things. Sure. Uh, but I, th I think that, you know, people were ready for the transition. So it, it wasn't, you know, I think we had in a few years, we had, we've kind of completely uh, overhauled or enhanced what was a good knowledgeable system of, uh, you know, back. But it was, it was a little bit uh, primitive. Yeah. Uh, so I, th I think it's different now. And people tell me that. So, which is, I think, a, a compliment to what, what my staff does. To me, one of the most fascinating parts of your job in compliance is the advocacy that you do on the eligibility part of student athletes and some of the battles that you face there. So I'm just curious if you'd be able to expand on some of the day-to-day -day battles that you fight in this job on behalf of student athletes and, and what that process is like for you. Yeah, and so you know, it's funny you say that. One of the reasons I did want to leave, and I didn't touch on this before, the NCA was I was sick of being the guy that was keeping kids out of competition, the right? The no guy. Well, I mean, and, 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 and so, yes, I, I believed in the approach that we were providing when we were there, which was a standard, uniform way of looking at a set of rules and applying it across the board. So it didn't matter if you went to USC or Stetson or Northern Illinois, you your kid is being reviewed for pre-enrollment amateurism concerns in the same way as everybody else. Or if you're on the enforcement side, you know, you, you are, you're doing a subjective or excuse me, an objective uh, a, a review and, and it, with, um, with a, a uniform process. Um, but at the end of the day, you, you're still the guy that was sitting on appeals calls with kids crying because they didn't get to play sports. And you're sitting, I remember thinking, like, this is the most fun thing that I've ever done, right? And what, you know, on the amateurism side, a lot of these kids were international kids that had just been caught up in a club system that doesn't operate the same way that our high school system is. Were they really failed pros? Or even if they were, was this the type of people that we really wanted to keep out of college athletics? Um, and that's, that's a rule change issue, all that kind of stuff. But on my side, I didn't want to do that anymore. And so when you say, uh, how do I feel about it? I love doing it. When we have good cases, and we've had a few. I think the most public one, so I don't mind saying this, was Shaquille McKissick a few years ago. I mean, he's the guy that talked about it a lot. To work with Shaquille to get that kid another year for what he had gone through. Um, and which didn't fit into any NCA directive as to why you should get a sixth year, but the NCA recognized a set of circumstance actually told me. Homelessness and... Yeah, the facts bore out that this kid deserved another year, and they said that. Uh, they said, you know, you don't meet the directive, but the case that you guys presented on his behalf, you know, he deserves uh, another year. And so for me, like I said, you've seen other ones that we've had. Um, I, I, I love that part of it, right? I do. I like to, to, to be able to try to fight for kids to be able to compete, help our coaches get get to what they want to have. Because I think even our coaches, when you're here, we're still the no guy. I yeah. mean, you probably hear that. Even though no matter what we do, how many yeses we give them, sure. what they remember is the big thing we can't allow them to do because of the rules. Um, and so to you know, it, it, it's fun to be able to to be able to, to to advocate for them. I think what I bring to it is been on the other side and see 
that you know you could have five arguments in a case, three of which everybody argues and are irrelevant, and it can go in a footnote. And it's like, what's the most important component to this waiver? What is the thing that you know that the NCA sit in, the people sit in meetings and talk about? You know that it's in the directive, or you know that you can get around it and say, hey, this is an egregious circumstance, set of circumstances that isn't fit neatly into this 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 area. I don't love filing waivers that sometimes we have to file because you have to file because mm -hmm. someone deserves another. You, you got to do the fight, and so you're, you know, yes, the kid, you know, deserves you to fight, deserves a fight for him, but it doesn't fit into a directive to allow him yeah. to get around something, or coach to be able to do something he doesn't want to do or wants to be able to do. Um, but but you know, still you're still fighting on their behalf. But I really do like the getting in and arguing, and and I like succeeding. Yeah, there's there's so much money now in college athletics. Uh, increasingly so, of course, um, in recent decades. And th that's put a strain on the perceptions of the student-athlete model. Um, and just from somebody who works on the inside of this and has seen it from the NCAA's perspective, the institution perspective, like like your, your current job, what what's your view of what that is like now and what the future may hold? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that, I mean, when I look at, what I've read and on, on the cases in, in, that you've seen being litigated, I mean, it seems like there's been a decision that, that the Supreme Court decided not to review that says that cost of attendance is where we need to be, right? And so, um, you know, we can get a, we, we could talk, we can, we can have a whole podcast on pay for play, and people have been talking about pay for play since I was in college, sure. right? But, but at the end of the day, what do I think is going to happen? I mean, if I were to predict it, I, I, and you've seen a little bit of the sanding off of the edges of the amateurism principle, because amateurism isn't, isn't a, a, a defined concept. It isn't a, a uniform concept globally, right? Mm -hmm. The amateurism is a concept that we define in the NCAA and exists in a bylaw, and it has changed over time. There's been a lot of changes to that rule, right? And, it, and so I do think that you'll see some of that. I think you'll see some changes to the way that amateurism is defined. I don't think it'll be flat out pay for play unless there's some reason one of these court cases breaks through and there's a mandate. I, I, I just, that's the way it looks like it's going. Um, I think that, you know, you see the NCA being very, very, and has been serious since the days of Miles Brand coming, Miles Brand coming in and, and, and starting the whole kind of academic uh, 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 reform, and then you see it as it's being played out now through enforcement cases. A lot of academic misconduct cases. People in, that are that are um, that are uh, uh, that are employed in the enforcement staff specifically to investigate those types of cases. I think that you'll see uh, those two areas. You know that there will be some change in amateurism. There will be a continued emphasis on the academic component uh, part of it um but i just i don't know that you're going to see huge changes it's just a hard model to change right there's lots of schools you're watching it happen in the governance processes right. it doesn't matter what mark emmert came in and said i want to do all these things from a rules perspective and it's just very difficult right you've got you know lots and lots of members voluntary members that are making the rules you don't have a governing body you don't have a group of owners that are doing you have every college with all kinds of different uh, resources and, 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 and desires and, and, and um, voting on legislation. And so I don't know how, how much it'll change. I think it's changed pretty, pretty significantly over the last few years. Um, but when we get to things like we're talking about how we use our resources, I do think one of the things that I look at is, is would my sport have survived 
uh, and would I be in the position that I'm in um, if we if we had to spend money in different ways and where we couldn't fund programs that don't make money, right? And so baseball doesn't make money probably anywhere. Um, and you know, and we have Title IX considerations, and that's an important thing, right? Because our our country does better than any other country in the world in the in women's sports, and part of that I think is attributable to Title IX. Um, and so I I think you know, putting aside all of the arguments, legal arguments, all that kind of stuff relating to pay for play, just from a practical standpoint, I love the fact that we can have 25 sports, 23 of which make no money or or hemorrhage money even. But it provides opportunities for kids, and I and I think there's probably studies out there that show the st student athlete success after graduation where that's at. So I do like the fact that we're able to be able to provide those opportunities, and I like the, and I certainly love the fact that I was able to provide it because it was on the chopping block, baseball a couple years after um, after it was even resurrected, and I remember thinking, oh, that would really ruin my life. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I wouldn't have left. Some kids would have opportunities to be able to leave. Uh, I would have just been there without playing baseball. So that's kind of where I come at from it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Steve, so much. The executive director and chief athletics compliance officer is the title, but as you say, the compliance guy. <laughs> that's Appreciate what you it. Go by. Thanks for having me, guys. It's fun. All right, that'll do it for this week's episode of the Sun Devil Source Report podcast. Stay tuned for next week when we break down Arizona State's upcoming spring game.